Please be sure to stay tuned to the very end of this week's Three Moves Ahead for a special announcement from all of us here. Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I am your host tonight, Troy Goodfellow. With me is common, frequent, often panelist, my good friend, Dr. Bruce Garrick. I, I am common, I guess. I'm, I'm a uh, commoner, I guess. In the context of this game, I would be, yes. Yes. Uh, you don't have any noble titles that I should know of, No, do you? not that I know of. Uh-uh. No. All right. And also, a friend of ours who hasn't been on the show in quite some time, that was once not our intern like Soren, but kind of our little brother from Conifer Games, John Schaefer. Three Musketeers back together again. <laughs> there you go. Or something. Talking about, uh, well, that's Troy's job. Yeah, well, we'll see what my job is. Uh, we have John partly on the show because of the game we are talking about this week. We are talking about, I think it's a game we've gotten probably the most requests to do a classic game analysis of, at least if my inbox is any indication. It is the Kingdom Management 4X Religious Simulator clan thing, role-playing game with action-adventure dialogue, King of Dragon Pass, a classic from quite a while ago that has was once very hard to find, uh, but is now available on mobile, and it is now on Steam, and it has popped up in a lot of places. And John, you have cited this uh, game, King of Dragon Pass, as an inspiration for the current design of your in-progress title, At the Gates. So I guess we want to start with you and see if you can first if you can for us if you can summarize the game for us and explain what about it you think makes it a design worth investigating for other uh, strategy game creators. Sure thing. So I guess the best way to describe it is that it's a very unique strategy game. <laughs> uh, to, to I guess be a little bit more specific, uh, you could say. It's like if uh, Crusader Kings had a love child with a choose-your-own-adventure book uh, because it's it's kind of a... It's an interesting hybrid of uh, story-based events uh, combined with an economic metagame and then uh, character management. So those are kind of the three components, I would say, that make up the majority of the game. Um, there's also a map although it's kind of abstract and doesn't play a huge role in the game, in, in my opinion. Uh, we could get into that. I disagree a little All bit, right. but that's okay. Oh, here we go. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but anyways, that's kind of that's kind of the game in a nutshell. Um, you, you play through these events. Uh, you make uh, decision tree choices. Okay, uh, execute the criminal or... Uh, save the girl and then make this other person angry or somebody comes in and asks for a thing and you can give it to them or not. And it all kind of weaves together in this really interesting uh, story-based strategy game that is kind of one of a kind in a lot of ways. Uh, It does a lot of other things that are innovative and unique, but uh, we'll get into those things, but that's kind of the gist. So Bruce, uh, you probably discovered this game a little earlier uh, than I did, since you are been doing this longer than I have. Um, I am twice as old as you are. Not twice, but you're old enough. Uh, can you remember when you first encountered uh, King of Dragon Pass? Because I remember when I did, and it was just this game everybody told me I should play. Uh-huh. And then I played it, and it was like, 
where has this thing been? Uh-huh. Uh, did you play it when it first came out? Yeah, I did. I actually, I actually had a uh, one of the release copies. Um, I was writing for a site that you may or may not recall called Games Domain Review. Yes, I remember and very well. It's um, it, it's interesting because I actually never reviewed it for Games Domain. Um, I got it. It showed up, and uh, actually, I think I think I was the second person to get it. Um, in the old days, Games Domain was a a website uh, that was based in um, the UK, in London actually, and um, they would get all these games and they would just send them out. We were all volunteer reviewers. At some point, some people got paid, but it was you know a pittance compared to the work that was being done. And um, one of the things about being a volunteer reviewer was that you sort of had this kind of code of honor that you, uh, um, you know, if you, if you did something wasn't up your alley, then, uh, you didn't, um, you didn't review it or, you know, just kind of pass it to the right person, whatever. So I think this game originally went to the role-playing game reviewer and that person actually sent it back saying, I don't like this. I don't, it's not my kind of game. And so they sent it to me and I got it. And the other thing about uh, Games Demand at that time was that there were no deadlines. So you could review anything, you could keep anything as long as you wanted. And you just, you know, send it in for posting when you were done. So that also led to a little code of honor, which was that you kind of tried to figure the game out before you actually started writing about it. And you didn't just dismiss a game that was, you know, that you thought was terrible. You had, you had all the time you wanted. You had no deadline. So it was sort of like figure this game out and get a get a good understanding of it and then write, which is why I think some of the reviews were so long and so tardy, um, especially mine. But um, I got it and I was initially said, oh, gosh, you know, I don't know. I don't like this kind of elven role playing thing. And then I was like, wait, there, there are no elves in this. And then I thought, well, I don't really like role-playing. I was like, well, it's not really role-playing. And then the more I got into the game, I thought, wow, wait, this is really interesting. Um, I need to play some more to figure this out. And so then, uh, you know, bad things would happen in the game, and I would have to restart and say, okay, I'm going to figure this out now. And then at some point, it became this obsession of mine to actually really, I was going to not only write a review, but like a guide to the game. And uh, as you can imagine, this whole project kind of, eventually, I just, I got so buried in the game, I felt like I couldn't review it because I didn't know enough about it, but I couldn't uh, write a guide because I definitely didn't know enough about it. And so I just would was uh, left emailing the uh, the games domain listserv saying, boy, this game is really good. I'll review it at some point. And we never, I don't think we ever reviewed it. We might have reviewed it years later, but uh, that was all on me. So anybody who was looking for a review of uh, King of Dragon Pass in 1999 uh from games domain uh that's my fault you can uh, call me <laughs> so so bruce you're uh you're not down with elves but you're fine with ducks mm. i am totally fine with ducks i'm fine fine with anything that's historically accurate <laughs> well we've, we've gotten well, that out of the way of- yeah, let's talk a little bit about the history set up here because this is set up in a it's a quasi historical i mean it's not historical i mean there's there's but it's History as the people who lived it would have thought it was, except for the duck tribe, I guess. You have this primitive tribe that has to manage a lot of things. Uh, what are the defenses of your of your tribe? How do you expand from a tribe to a kingdom? Um, how do you manage all the different classes in your society? Uh, who is the best advisor? And you have people coming in and out of your advising council and it's kind of set up in this you know quasi mythical 
founding of a new nation type thing. It's uh, what Machiavelli would have called, you know, the, the prince setting up new laws and orders. You're at the very beginning of this civilization. A pharaoh has driven you out. It's an Exodus Joshua type thing. And you're building a society out of everything around you while managing all of this other stuff. So it is, it is quasi-historical. And I think that's part of why it kind of draws me in, because it does have, it's kind of unique in that way. It is kind of civ-like in that it's, you know, kind of historic, it's historic-ish, it's historic. Pseudo-history. More than, <laughs> pseudo-history more than anything else, but it really does have, but more than civilization, it touches on, you know, what might it have been like for these, for early tribes, how they might have seen the creation of their society. You know, do you do a raid to conquer the next tribe, or you do you just want to grab some cows? And these are actually very, very important choices from day to day through the game. So I think that, so the the thing that the listeners and some listeners are probably uh, already getting on there, screaming into their uh, headphones or whatever, yeah. that this is actually based, this is not, they didn't just come up with, uh, this is not a, like an alternate earth, right? This right. is based on a, a, a role-playing game world called Glorantha, which was first basically, I think, sort of visualized by the guys at Greg Stafford specifically at Chaosium and published in the 70s as a pen and paper role-playing game. Right. Right. And the game, the world itself has been very uh, extensively documented. There's actually, it was a recent Kickstarter called Guide to Glorantha, which uh, produced two beautiful hardbound uh, copies and a, a, a books and a, and a softbound atlas. Um which you can still get a PDF of. Unfortunately, the hardcovers are sold out. Um, they, uh, I mean, which is pages and pages of, of lore, history, and um, there was a game called White Bear Red Moon, which is uh, a board game, which was then republished uh, by Avalon Hill. Actually, it's one of my favorite um, uh, fantasy board games called uh, Just Dragon Pass. Uh, and it incorporated all of the, you know, the Lunar Empire and the, uh, you know, the, the all all these different places in uh, Glorantha with, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, they even mentioned that the um, the map in, uh, in uh, King of Dragon Pass has the same size hexes as the board game Dragon Pass. Oh. Um, which is, I never knew, but I was, uh, before we started the show, I was just reading some of uh, David Dunham's uh, um posts about it on his website um the uh thing interesting thing is about this david dunham who worked at a sharp and, and was basically responsible for most of the game he also was involved uh he worked for shenandoah studio and um was was a developer on um uh battle of the bulge so that's uh that's an interesting lineage there but anyway i guess the, the point that i should make and I, i'm a, sorry i'm a little long-winded about this but point i'm making is that the, the the game feels, I think, grounded in a certain sense because all of this sort of backstory and a lot of the sort of creation myth and everything, it's very well thought out because it's all part of sort of this coherent you know, story that these guys made about their world. Um, I think that the best sort of role-playing, um, the best role-playing environments and i think john could comment on this too as far as video games is that they're they're built in worlds that the creators have very carefully visualized and things that they sort of know about the world they put into the into the game 
And I think that that shows up in, in, in King of Dragon Pass because King of Dragon Pass is really them telling a story about this part of, you know, of Glorantha. And of course, you know, it, like you said, it takes into account the sort of, you know, creation myth and, and different, um, uh, you know, the, the, the struggle of sort of early societies to keep their uh, members uh, together and safe and, and, and to grow and prosper. Um, but it's, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, whatever, the Skarg or the Protoss or the whatever space elf, this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's actually built on a, a pretty carefully created world that's been around for, you know, four decades. And it's a carefully created world that doesn't inundate you with backstory. I mean, there's backstory there, but you discover it kind of as you play. It doesn't have this long setup to it in many ways. You are especially, I mean, we'll talk a bit about the religion. I think one of my favorite things in the game is how it deals with religion and faith. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. really a big part of it is you, you uncovering the myths of your people and how these become rituals. And that's a big part of, I guess, the backstory uh, of the Glorantha world uh, and these deities. So I think I... I really like, I mean, grounded, I think is the best way to put it. There is this background and there's this history, but it's not like, as you'll find in a lot of role-playing games, um, you know, let's just give them lore. And lore is not the same thing mm -hmm. uh, exactly. as, right. as having a grounded world. Mm -hmm. I agree. John, do you, do you like lore? I do. I wish I was better at it. <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm definitely more of a nuts and bolts mechanical kind of designer. But uh, one of the things that's great about King of Dragon Pass is that it checks both of those boxes. I think it. It really, uh, obviously, a lot of care was put into the translation of the lore into the game because there, there, there's obviously a big difference between just having a bunch of lore behind a game and actually bring it up to the surface in a way that is meaningful for players. Um, and, you know, part of that is just that King of Dragon Pass knows what it is. <laughs> some some games don't. Uh, maybe it sounds kind of obvious, but King of Dragon Pass says, all right, this is a game about story, this is a game about characters, and this is what we're doing. So we're going to push on that, and we're going to do that right, and, and they really pulled it off. So um, definitely on the lore side, but um, it also kind of bleeds over into the mechanics side. Um, and, and my, my favorite feature in the game probably is the focus on characters. And this is something that I really, uh, have drawn inspiration from with at the gates, uh, in particular. So, uh, it, it's almost kind of uh, King of Dragon Pass. It's kind of like a Crusader Kings two before Crusader Kings two was a thing, uh, in that, the whole game is about who these people are and what they're doing and how you can leverage them and what they want. And just, you know, it, it's a character based game, which is extremely different from pretty much every other strategy game out there. Um, and that's, in my opinion, the thing that really separates it more than anything else. And it wasn't until a game like Crusader Kings that I would say a, a strategy game uh, came anywhere close, and that was, I don't know, a decade later. So that's, you know, they, they were way ahead of their time with this game, and that's, I think, a, a big reason why a lot of people uh, have such fond memories of it. I'm going to throw on that character angle because it is, you know, it, it's beyond the, I mean, the, the 
Mark, the characters you interact with most are the ones on your council, just kind of like you know, Crusader Kings, as you say. You have all these people on your council, and you've got your vassals, and they're doing things. But there's also, you know, there are the decisions you take in the adventure story part. Things happen, you make a decision, and it might end up biting you on the butt, you know, hours later, days later, weeks later. And it's finally, it's measuring these consequences and how it affects all the tribes around you. Uh, Bruce, I know that you're, you're into story and you're into history and you're and you're into characters because you know you are big into personalities because you have a big personality. <laughs> uh, when when you were playing this and you were thinking about writing a guide, how do you write up a guide for something that is just so really kind of original then in the strategy game space? Well, I mean, I think the point that the of course you know the way that I think about games is that you know I think of them in a lot of senses very quantitatively. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, okay, if I have if I have this many weapons, so let's. I, I feel like we're getting a little arcane though for our, for our listeners. So if people who have not played the game, the game really, you're 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 in, you know, the leader of a of a clan, and you have a as Troy was saying, you have a leader, you have um, a, a a council, um, uh, or it's actually called it. Sorry, it's a circle. It's the circle the ring. Um, Ring, ring, clan ring, ring. Gosh. Okay. Yes. Gosh, I have a clan ring. That's it, right? You have it's. You have how long it's been since I played. <laughs> um, but um, but the point is that you know they they have various personalities and they tell you to do things or they're sort of your advisors. But you, then you also have all this other stuff that's that's actually more quantitative. You can you have points of magic that you can spend on various things. You do rituals. You have uh, you know a certain number of farmers. You have a certain number of cows. You have weapon things. Um, and all of these, uh, of course, as a strategy gamer, you know, what's the first thing that I gravitate to? Is it, you know, what somebody on my clan is saying? No, because that's just, to me, that's not that's nothing. It doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. But I have five weapon things. So the fact that I have five weapon things, I want to see objectively how much better that is than having four weapon things and how much worse than it is than having six weapon things. And, of course, I think it took me a while to really figure out that it, the game didn't play up that level of granularity. Um or maybe it doesn't. I still haven't figured it out. But it's been a while since I played. But uh, seriously, the 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 point is that you make sort of general decisions. And uh, what I was trying to do with a with a guide was try to say, you know, okay, if you uh, spend you know X uh, uh, points of magic on this, then that gives you. So that was I was in a very. Um, I think that was when I was really really. Uh, sort of on a on a crusade uh, against uh, hidden mechanics and um, uh, sort of uh, what I felt was ob- needless obfuscation in gaming. Um, I, I have a slightly different um, opinion about it now, uh, probably because board games have become so much more popular, and so that I get what I need from that there. Um, but uh, but that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to to sort of take all the quantitative pieces of the game and explain what they actually meant because I felt. In, I, at the time, I felt that that was kind of frustrating, and um, and I sort of, as I played, I I came to appreciate the way that they put the game together because this is a game that is uh, part, like we said, we can try to categorize it forever, and, and to me that ultimately isn't a very interesting no. thing, as it is to describe what is, you know, sort of evocative or visceral or, or in, engaging about it for me, and the thing that is for me, is the combination of that quantitative aspect and then the story. But then they have this really great art, which uh, is, you know, this, I don't know how you would describe it. It's almost like a, a watercolor kind of, maybe. Yeah, it's kind of uh, like yeah. the, the thing, I, the term I was thinking of is kind of like a storybook almost. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah, storybook storybook type of of um, of presentation, but but it's not it's not juvenile. It's 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 a, it's it's sort of an adult storybook. Um, and so I thought that the the combination of all these things was regardless of what that make turns it into it sort of gives you um a game that is uh, a, a story that you follow with these these um these drawings but then what they've done which is really interesting is that they've made the game in such a way that it's it is very replayable and while you'll see these things come up again and again because there are only you know there's a certain number of events and and interactive events um you are presented with these pictures, but the text changes, but it's still consistent because the way that they've uh, the way that they've drawn the events doesn't depend on the particular depiction of any uh, of any character that you're playing or the identity of a character like the, these those people in your clan ring. Um, the names and personalities can change because they don't want you to fix on fixate on a certain uh, on a certain portrait. They'd rather have you learn through the story. Um, so they've they've really very ingeniously created this whole system where um you can play through the game and everything is consistent with itself while still being able to play through a whole bunch of different branching points in the in the interactive part and which is influenced by your decisions that you make in the more quantitative part um so uh, so so that's the thing that they they sort of created this world that sort of hangs together uh, it's not, it's not just a, oh, I'm going to, you know, uh, go through this and learn the story and then be done. You know, obviously the more, the more a game has a uh, story, the less replayable, uh, if you have like a main storyline, the, the, the less replayable it can seem. Um, but I think that there's, there's a difference, uh, in this game because of what it's done and how they've kept the graphical representation from being limited by those other two parts. What makes it what makes it evocative or, or compelling for you, John? I mean, you're the you're the game designer, so um, obviously something touched you about uh, how these guys sort of came up with this this game of undefinable genre. And you, as a you know an accomplished strategy developer, you saw something that you felt was really important. What what was that thing? The biggest thing is probably just how they meshed so many different interesting concepts in a game that just hadn't been done before. So I, I already mm-hmm. talked earlier about the character focus, um, but another feature, and again, this, you know, these are sorts of things that have appeared in different games and different genres, but never in something quite like this, where it's, again, you know, the, the way I always describe King of Dragon Pass is a story-based strategy game, which is, mm-hmm. just sounds kind of weird, but that's because, mm-hmm. well, that's what this game is. <laughs> it's very unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have characters they can they can die uh from certain events they can uh grow old and, and die from old age uh mm-hmm. there's internal strife and politics and you kind of have to deal with all right well what does this person want what does this person want um some of the things that i've kind of latched on to um with at the gates in particular uh, is kind of a, a cyclical cycle of seasons or turns where certain things happen in a certain order, you know what's coming up, and that causes you to adjust your strategy because you can't just, you know, in, in a typical strategy game or typical RTS or whatever, 
the map is the map and the environment is the environment and you just send your units out you just do whatever and okay you, you know maybe there's special terrain here and there but it's never like okay yeah we got to get back before winter guys or okay well there's this really important event coming up we have to make sure we've accumulated resources in order to get ready for that um and, and that's something that is incorporated in this game as well uh there's a big focus on meaningful trade-offs which is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, kind yes. of unique for strategy games in a lot of ways uh i i almost hate to say um because in a lot of in a lot of strategy games there's an emphasis on micromanagement where you make a lot of little decisions that add up into something big but in king of dragon pass you're generally um not always but the emphasis is on big decisions that have you know impactful consequences that you can you can see the effect of down the road so if if there's an outlaw that you catch and you have the choice of executing them or pardoning them there are consequences for doing each of those that actually mean something and in a lot of games especially rpgs i feel like which is you know those are kind of the two genres that this game is touching in rpg you have dialogue choices and in almost every game it doesn't really even matter what dialogue choices you pick uh but in king of dragon pass that's not the case so again it's just it's just hitting on all these notes to such an extent that it can appeal to hardcore strategy gamers and in in a similar way to a game like crusader kings it can appeal to people that aren't even necessarily strategy fans or would never say that they enjoy strategy games uh, because there is this focus on characters and story. So it, it sounds like, Bruce, you're coming from it from almost the opposite direction where you're like, okay, yeah, the lore and the story is great, but I like I like the nitty-gritty stuff. But at the same time, somebody else can come from it from the exact opposite direction and say, I don't really care about all these numbers and stuff, whatever. I'm just going to, you know, spin the sliders wherever. And, oh, my goodness, you know, somebody, you know, got caught with a, young woman what do we do about this you know it, there's <laughs> right, just right, right. there's just such right. a wide gamut of different experiences that this game can provide so it's just it's a combination of a lot of things but um they're all really interesting and and unique and i'm kind of trying to tap into that a little bit with what i'm doing in in my current and future projects but uh king of dragon pass was uh the first on the scene in a lot of ways and uh strategy games are still catching up now do you think uh, this is a question that i have about you know you're designing you know obviously um uh your your current game at the gates is is really about um you know a very sort of uh, macro uh level historical events right um uh, you know barbarian tribes uh sort of taking down a civilization but the uh thing that is so i mean you can also say that that's kind of in a way going on in, I mean, King of Dragon Pass sort of evokes its own history throughout the game, right? And I would think that one of the things that would be difficult, John, for example, for you as a developer would be to to personalize the game enough uh, while still keeping, sort of giving us, the, 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 the larger a scope a game has and the more possibility there seems to be, even if there isn't that possibility in reality, it gives the game sort of an imaginative depth, right? And the thing that I always found sort of annoying was when strategy games would would have this 
big sort of sweep of history. And then you'd have this unit and it's like, you know, this is, you know, Caesar and here, oh, here he is. Right. And it sort of diminishes, it diminishes the character in, in sort of in the game setting by just making him a little, a little icon. Um, and, and what King of Dragon Pass allows the, the player to do is sort of immerse him or herself in this world in a very personal sort of, you know, day-to-day, uh, day-to-day event kind of thing with the, with the interactive events. But then you're always thinking about, you know, you, you, the, your, your sort of the, the alignment of your clan and who, who's around you and, the, and your god and, and, and the sort of the development of the, of the civilization within Dragon Pass. And it's this kind of weird ability to do that and then, uh, then link it to things like, oh, you know, how many cattle do we actually have? Oh, you know, a whole bunch of our cattle died. Um, that sort of uh, alludes to your place in sort of the pecking order of this larger uh, larger society and whether you guys are going to survive or we have to, you know, clans are going to have to combine, things like that. So um, is, is that something that you can use in a, in a game that is really about, you know, uh, tribes and combat and sort of larger scope historical events? To a certain extent, yes. I think in a lot of ways it depends on your subject matter. So I have a big advantage with At the Gates in that the barbarian tribes of, you know, Germania and Francia and everywhere else in the late Roman era, most people don't know very much about that, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, kind of scary in a way as the developer. Yeah, but your Troy Goodfellow does. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm hardly a good standard to use for most people. <laughs> not, not, not a good baseline for game design. <laughs> so there's a lot, there's a lot of ambiguity is what you're saying. There's a lot of, a lot of vagueness or sort of just, uh, you can fill it in yourself is what you're saying. Exactly. And that's, and that's kind of the opportunity that I took when I decided to focus on uh, the clans in at the gate. So we were kind of, scaling things up one one uh, one level uh, from king of dragon past at the gate so instead of individuals making up a clan there's clans that make up a tribe but uh yeah you you can kind of fill in the blanks in a lot of ways and with a game like civilization for example it's almost the exact opposite situation where people have such strong preconceived notions about so many things that it really limits you in a lot of ways as a designer it's it's also beneficial on the marketing side and in you know in certain ways when you're trying to make a mechanic that's interesting or hook somebody into okay well now we're transitioning to the medieval era and there's pikemen and knights and people are like oh I like knights okay so you know you you immediately have a a step up uh, whereas a fantasy or a, a sci-fi game or whatever you know you just have this era shift and you get a better unit it's like all right well whatever I don't care about that uh, so it, it it's kind of a double-edged sword in a way, whichever way you go. But um, what was initially kind of daunting ended up being a big strength because I could just fill that in with whatever I wanted. And the more that I researched the era and just kind of the uh, the whole ethos, I guess, surrounding uh, kind of these tribal cultures is that they were very personal. They were very character-based. You would have charismatic personalities and you would have mm-hmm. individuals and the, the, the specific stories that different people would would have, would experience and then share with others. That was kind of what life was. And mm-hmm. those are the things that don't get passed down to us now. Uh, but those are the things that we can also still relate to because we still do the same thing, you know, just, you know, 
through our phones or Twitter or whatever in a lot of cases, but it, it's still something we relate to. And with At The Gates, I have the advantage of being able to tap into that, and a lot of that was definitely inspired by uh, King of Dragon Pass. Um, kind of the whole clan system was very much uh, influenced by the game, and that's probably the biggest feature in At The Gates now, um, between the clans having different traits and being able to assign them to different roles, and then they can get upset at what you're doing with them, or they can get upset at each other and they can, you know, start talking to you and have comments about different things. And you can, you know, at, at a certain point, I even had a, a, a council of sorts in the game where you could kind of promote and demote people from the council and get different bonuses. Uh, I ended up cutting that because it just kind of didn't um, make sense once we kind of fleshed the system out completely because there was just a lot that going on. That would be like on. the clan ring, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was something that I even tried out. I'm like, okay, well, this this definitely seems interesting. It's a way you use your limited resources, which is exactly uh, what King of Dragon Pass was doing. Um, it just kind of ended up being too much. <laughs> you know, it's something that could come back later. But, um, you know, all these things kind of have parallels in King of Dragon Pass. But um, the, the thing that I'm working on now that I think might be kind of the the maybe the biggest feature in At The Gates when it, when it is finally done is um, something I'm calling story-based diplomacy. And this is directly um, something from King of Dragon Pass, where instead of diplomacy just being about, uh, you know, trading this widget for that widget or mm -hmm. two gold per turn for that technology, mm -hmm. it's, about it's about events and it's about a um, progression uh, of things that lead one to another. Um, and this is where kind of the focus on characters and story really, really pays dividends for King of Dragon Pass in a way that no other strategy game has managed to pull off. Uh, even games like Alf Centauri, uh, which are lauded for its diplomacy, um, honestly, I don't think they come close. I think King of Dragon Pass has the best, you know, quote-unquote diplomacy of any strategy ish game that's ever come out and it's not really close um so that's Tro kind of a big deal <laughs> you know, that, that, Tro that, Troy, that, do you agree with that uh, no <laughs> uh, but pretty good up until you know we came along uh i want to follow on something Fan you said boy. about um i've got a job to do <laughs> <laughs> uh about one of the, about the, being the, 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 the long-term planning of the characters and all of this. and But a big part of the game is, as you said, uh, Bruce, you know, how many weapon things do I have? How many cows do I have? Right. Uh, how bad is the winter? This mm -hmm. is also a game that is really big on forcing you to be a, a, a adaptive. Now, we've talked a lot on this show about games that ask you to pick a strategy early and you stick with it. Like, a, in many ways, the original Civ V. You know, you bust, but what... What winning condition am I going for? What is this civilization built for? This is a game, King of Dragon Pass, where you really can't quite do that. But sometimes you'll need to follow. Your strategy will require you pushing something really hard, but then you find out you're, you're missing like two gods you need on your ring because you went hard in diplomacy and you hired these great eloquent people from the trickster god but oh god i need a god of fertility i needed the goddess of fertility to help me here but there's no one in the clan to help me with that so i'm, I'm losing favor there um this is one of the great trade-offs and there are just so many big trade-offs in this game from turn to turn day to day and it's so hard to keep them 
balance. Now, I guess there are probably wikis out there that solve all of this. And oh, there, I guarantee you there are. Oh, I yeah, should have looked for those. Yeah, I <laughs> and this is, goes back to one of my... I'm thinking back to the Kingdom show that the guys did last week, and they were telling things that were sort of secrets in the game and wondering if they should be doing that. I think a big part of King of Dragon Pass is the stuff you discover. And I think, you know, if you figure out the min-maxing really early, maybe the game will lose some of its magic. But it, it is a game that requires a lot more adaptation from turn to turn and being willing to throw out, you know, a long-term plan for the next four or five turns because you're dealing with a famine or a cattle raid. You've lost, you lost a major battle and you're on, you know, your last feet and you have to defend yourself. Um, I'm trying to think of other games that really do that really as well, where there isn't this, it's not a game that has the whole um, snowball effect that so many strategy games have, or even that RPGs have, where you reach a certain point in power, and it's like, yeah, fireball, fireball. Um, this King of Dragon Pass keeps throwing up obstacles. Even when you get up to, you know, you're a clan, and then you're a tribe, and then you get the kingdom, and there's still things that can knock you down. And this is a game, I think, that, has, that resists so many of the tropes we complain about in strategy games. <laughs> so, so this is actually where I uh, start to push back a little bit on the uh, uh, glowing praise that we've heaped on the game. Uh, I believe all—I agree with all of that, but I, I think there is a double-edged sword here as well, uh, in that a lot of that adaptation is coming from just randomness. And certainly there are, there are factors that influence the probabilities of events and, and things tie together. But thinking about how a large percentage of the audience will experience the game, a lot of times you're just going to have, okay, this event happened, this event happened, this event happened, and it's gonna, it, it won't feel as connected. And if something bad happens, you're just going to say, well, of course, you know, whatever, stupid game. Um, you know, some people embrace that, some people dislike it. That's kind of the the uh, conundrum of randomness is that uh, some people are perfectly fine with it, uh, some people absolutely hate it, and there's a you know a large space in between where it can do good, but you have to be careful how you use it. So, King of Dragon Pass definitely leans pretty heavily on that, uh, mainly because of how important the event system is. Um, you know. I'll, I'd probably say that the majority of your time or or a lot of people's time will be reading and then considering uh, their responses to events. Uh, so there's different aspects to the game. There's the, the clan ring management. There's uh, economic stuff. There's uh, some military stuff. A lot, you know, there's a lot going on. It's a big strategy game, but you know, just in terms of, okay, what am I spending my time on? I'm probably going to be spending several minutes reading or a couple minutes reading each entry and then thinking about what my answer should be. And that's kind of the bulk of the game. So these things just keep coming, you know, boom, 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 boom. And, you know, a lot of times it will feel random for people. And again, there's there's kind of a, a cost to that, I think, where uh, in, a, in a game where, you know, something like Civ, for example, uh, certainly incorporates randomness, but the the canvas upon which the game exists is the map. And you see a resource deposit, or you see a city, or you see a mountain range, or you see a river, or whatever, uh, a forest that you can chop down for wood. Your 
time, your experience with the game is spent interacting with the map. In this game, that's not the case. Instead, it's kind of shifted more onto the event side. And, you know, as a, as a kind of a, a humongous uh, map fanboy myself, uh, you know, I'm all about the map randomness and procedural generation and whatnot. Um, this was something that kind of fell a little bit short for me. And I'm not saying that the game didn't accomplish what it set out to do. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, I think it did pretty much exactly what it wanted to do, which is admirable because most games don't. But for me, I'm like, okay, well, I like seeing what my opportunities are. I like being able to kind of plan it geographically and think about these sorts of things. And, and like I said, there is a map in the game, but it's just it's a lot more abstract. It's just not nearly the same. It's not where you're spending your time, where you're spending your energy. So those two things kind of tie together, I think, where um, with an event system, you kind of have to make it more random just by necessity, uh, unless you just have literally 10,000 events that can kind of chain together in perfectly logical sense. But anyways, uh, I guess my point is just that that, that randomness, um, you know, is kind of the seed for a lot of the adaptation that you were talking about which is good but it's also bad but it's good bruce where do you where do you stand on the map well so i what i understand exactly i mean john's not saying anything that's incorrect uh however i think his interpretation of it is a little different than mine um the idea that the so first of all the map does have an impact on obviously what clans are around you and where you i mean it, it's it, you're not going through a um, through a sort of choose your own adventure thing where uh, th- like the map is window dressing. You are in an actual place in Dragon Pass, and you have surroundings, and uh, you will interact with those surroundings. Now, the fact that you're not looking at a map all the time, I think, is very consistent with the type of. Uh, with the type of game that they've created and that the fact that once you take the game to a to the position of an individual you sort of have to take that map away because as soon as you elevate yourself to the point where you're you're looking at uh, oh you know oh there are the mountains and oh look how things have changed then you're sort of giving the player I, mean, I don't know if you'd be riding an eagle or something or you know how everything would be you know sort of ultra glowing on a uh, you know piece of parchment or whatever but that d- things don't work like that and you're the these really try to give you the perspective of an individual working in this world and dealing with events as they come day to day. And so, I mean, while our lives aren't completely random, our lives don't also fit this kind of, uh, you know, progression of, you know, sort of like a movie where everything is, is taken and, and, and only the important parts are shown or whatever, right? I mean, you, you have a certain, and a lot of events that may be, uh, may be very important in the development of, you know, whatever storyline are, may not appear important at the time, but the way that they have sort of cascading effects, it shows that there's it, it sort of builds the idea that you have this connected uh, environment and that you are very much an individual who is who is interacting with the environment rather than you are a player who is saying, oh, okay, well, um, you know, I can see that uh, you know the these this clan uh, is getting smaller here, so that I'm just going to you know go take their land because you have no way of knowing that. Uh, you may hear uh, you know that presented to you in the game in a certain way, but, um, you're not, um, you're never taken out of the game 
in a in the way that you know if you're told that you have 59 weapon thanes we can go count the weapon thanes right and so yes i know how many i know how many farmers or weapon thanes or cows or whatever i have i don't have this uh sort of omnipotent view of my surroundings and how big all the clans are and you know you know i know the geography because that's what i've been open taught but um, having sort of a real time or an updating map, I think would defeat the purpose of the game. And, um, and, and I think that, like John said, it, the game goes, achieves exactly what it, what it's looking for, uh, or what's it setting out to do. I think, I mean, I'm not sure, actually, I don't know what David Dunham was uh, trying to achieve, but, um, if I can just pretend that I'm like, you know, being David Dunham instead of being John Malkovich, I'm going to say that he wanted to make, uh, a game that was a story that is told the, the story of the player rather than presented the, the story of the player as a game that you could then sort of step outside of. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, like, I, I agree completely. It's just kind of, uh, you know, my perspective as a player and, and, you know, kind of bleeds into my approach as a designer is mm-hmm. I am, I'm like heavy on maps, like maps are mm-hmm. my thing, right? From when I was sure. five years old, like that's what got me into history mm-hmm. and everything else and games and you know, pretty much everything has been maps, 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 right. <laughs> uh, well, which is probably not a, healthy, but you know, we, we, well, I, I think it's awesome. You should, uh, you should definitely try to track down a copy of that, uh, or you can get the PDF of the Glorantha Atlas. Cause I mean, it's, it's, it, you're right. There's a cost to getting rid of that thing that you love, which is the map. There is a cost. So, uh, you have to decide whether you are willing to pay the price. And I think the price is a very consistent presentation, which is something that so many games, don't do. I mean, you really have a, a strategy game that still maintains this. It's like a first-person perspective, uh, and everything that's presented in the game is presented in sort of a reasonable way, um, in terms of how you would expect somebody to interact with uh, with the world. So, I mean, I love maps too. Yeah, I mean, because I, I, you can only get your intelligence in the world by sending out diplomats and emissaries and giving gifts. And then they report back like a month or two later. And then you've got mm-hmm. to interpret that information. Mm-hmm. So, it's kind of one of my. So, the character stuff really plugs into the the grayness of the information you have. And you have to interpret it and translate that uh, based on the cues that the characters give you. Um, and you know, maybe and things can change in between. You know, you get the dip, your diplomat comes back and he has a report. If you don't take action for another four or five months on that weak and hostile tribe, they might not be a weak and hostile tribe when you decide to take action. Um, so, I always go for overkill. <laughs> well, John, how would that work if you did it in a in a you know you tried to have, say, like a Civ Five type game? I'm not saying Civ Five, but you know, like a like a typical. Uh, overhead sort of map view where you sent out a, a, a you know a diplomat and then you then he just vanished and you might hear about him later right you might get a report that would be sort of a disconnect between uh between what the, the map's presenting you with this 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 you know sort of uh, overarching omnipotent viewpoint but then your uh your unit that you sent out vanishes. So that uh, that would, to me would be a disconnect. So in order to make that consistent, you do have to take the map away. Yeah, I think I mean it's it's ultimately a spectrum in in a sense where you can you can have you know any level of information available to you about the map. So you could 
send somebody off and then they disappear and then they come back and then you get a bunch of reports about these four different things that are out there and then are potentially interesting and then could tie into events or choices that you could make. Um, and that's, you know, kind of where this, this kind of problem or challenge takes us towards, uh, where, and then this is something that kind of plagues action and RPG games as well, where it's just a question of scope in a lot of ways, um, because you can't model everything because it's just not possible <laughs> in, in, I guess maybe in more of a, in, in an, in an omnipotent map based game, it feels like everything is there more so than that's actually true. It's perhaps more of an illusion because like in, in, in King of Dragon Pass, for example, and, and this is one of the other things that, um, you know, I, I don't know if I'd call it a criticism, but a, a, a point of interest or debate is that in a lot of ways, the game happens to you more than you happen to the game. So it's not, Exactly to that extent, there's certainly a lot of choices that you make, but the emphasis on the event system, like the event system is this thing happens, here are your three choices. That's Or four or five or six choices. Sure, sure. But it's it's a dramatically different scenario from, okay, I have this wide open map where I have these six units and I can send them anywhere in the world to do whatever I want. And, you know, whether that's kind of a, false illusion illusionary choice uh it at least feels like i can do whatever i want this is unlimited but in king of dragon pass a lot of times the game will feel a lot smaller than that and again this is this kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier where this is the goal of the game it's it's supposed to be personal it's supposed to be about being a member of a tribe where you're not an omnipotent floating head that's immortal uh you're actually you know, somebody that is existing in this world in, in a sense and has limited information and limited uh, capabilities. And it's just it's just kind of a disconnect in a lot of ways from a typical strategy game. And in a lot of ways, that's good. And in a lot of ways, that will potentially turn people off. Um, you know, I think the, the good qualities of that by far outweigh any concerns just because it is such a unique game if uh if kind of the tables were turned and every game worked this way and then no game was like Civ or whatever then i'd probably have the opposite opinion but the fact that it is so unique that it is kind of uh you know trailblazing or <laughs> trailblazed uh you know a decade and a half ago um is a big part of the reason why it has so much value and even though i kind of have these uh you know, kind of nits to pick with it in, in, in ways that are based on my personal, um, tastes in terms of strategy games. Uh, that's not a criticism directly into the game. It's just kind of a, you know, the fact that it is so unique is what makes it good, but the fact that it's so unique is also what might turn people off. So it's, it's, it's really, you know, it's just an interesting game. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, before we wrap up, talk about what I think is one of the most interesting parts of the game, because one of my own personal uh, little obsessions is how it deals with religion, uh, faith, 
and uh, how religion affects societies. This is something I'm personally very interested in. It's something I've always found interesting in how games deal with it back from you know, even when, you know, the first civilization where you build a temple that makes people happy. I mean, it's just a, but that's what temples do. Temples make people happy. That's the reduce unrest uh, to, you know, more uh, elaborate types of games. I mean, we've, in the RPG world, we've seen you know, the Dragon Age games do a really nice uh, portrayal, I think, of uh, what religion can mean in a society. But in strategy games, I think that this portrayal of a pagan uh, polytheistic world is, I think, one of the most interesting and in-depth um, attempts to integrate religion into a strategic context. Um, Bruce, do you have any thoughts on that? Or should I just yell? Yell? Yeah. What just, would you yell about? Just about how, just what I like about it, I guess. No, I want to hear about, I've talked a yeah, lot. Well, I guess, right? I mean, here's, you, need, you need to talk. Here's what, here's what I'm really, this is a game that is about ritual. It is about performative religion. Religion isn't just a backdrop. It's not in, it's not a relational thing like in Crusader Kings or European Versalis where you're Christian, I'm Muslim, therefore we don't get along. So it isn't a relational thing necessarily. It isn't uh, like civilization where religion's the opiate of the masses and it keeps the people content and the gold keeps coming in. It is a game where religion must be performed. And in many ways, I think it's inspired by you know Robert Graves' really weird understandings of pre-classical Greek religions where, oh, they just, they had to perform this ritual to kill the king and all Greek myths are kind of connected to this thing he was kind of imagining and putting in place. So it's a bit of a golden bow thing in here and a bit of Robert Graves because a, a big part of the game is discovering your culture's myths and then performing the rituals that reenact the myths properly. And you do them through choose-your-own-adventure type things, and you've got to choose the right dialogue option to get the benefit. If you screw it up, then you can't perform that ritual again for a while. It's a very important ritual, um, and it kind of slows you down if you don't get it right. So you want to get the ritual right. Plus, balancing all of the deities on your clan, because you never know when you'll need a specific prayer and how many cows is this prayer worth to you is a material context to the religion it is something that is vital and essential and this ties into a lot of we have this expectation i think in strategy games to see religion as just a way to keep people quiet and this is just a routine that they do um there's a few exceptions you know we have a uh, children of the nile the, my favorite egyptian city builder where the gods really didn't do anything, but the people in your culture believe the gods did things, and that's why you needed temples for them. But they weren't any benefits beyond people want a temple to raw. Here there are clear benefits, but it's also a society that is quite alien to ours. I think one of the first, one of my favorite early quests and adventures you kind of get is uh, some one of your clan members is pregnant out of wedlock and you have to decide what to do. And, you know, we have this perception of primitive societies of, oh, you'll shun the, shun the slot type thing. And we, we don't want her in our society, but no, actually in her culture and her tribe, that's perfectly fine. It's not a thing. So we've insulted her and her family. So if we bring our own misperceptions of ancient cultures and ancient religions into this game, I think we kind of, it's so easy to screw this up instead of trying to understand, like you said, Bruce, this grounded world they're giving us, grounded in the myths and beliefs. And I think of all the other RPGs out there. I mean, think of the D&D games that have, that have, that have, they, they have clerics, and the clerics have religions that never play any role whatsoever. 
in any of the role-playing stuff. And here's a game that's a strategy game, and I'm not sure about the Glorantha RPG if the deities are actually really, really central there, but it's kind of... It's something I would like to see more of in strategy games that have this attempt to... We have schools of magic in, NARP in strategy games, um, Masters of Magic and... Uh, the Elemental series, where there are different types of magic, gives you different types of spells, but not really an attempt to integrate this sort of thing into a belief system. And I think that's kind of a very special thing to have in a strategy game that takes this culture so seriously. Yeah, tell me more about how you feel that, because it sounds to me like you you said that it, it didn't, it, we shouldn't bring our understandings of what we think ancient cultures thought was important but the game clearly thinks certain things are important right it's yeah. not just it's not just random no no uh, i think we it, no it's certainly not random the, 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 the game will tell you what's important um and some of the things are things that we think are important you know like you don't want to have a civil war <laughs> you don't want uh to be deposed you want all you don't want you know to be conquered uh, there are certainly things but these are standard thing but as far as games that try to have cultures many of them this because this is a an alien society it is an alien culture and it is a lot of it is trying to understand i think it's mostly with the religion and the cultural stuff i mean like like even the whole stupid duck thing you know we think the ducks are kind of funny and they really really are and i i really want to know the ducks are on the glorantha mythos do you know bruce are there ducks on the glorantha mythos to be to be honest with you i haven't played rune quest and in uh since i think 1980 but uh but the first of all you the thing you said about the deities they are important yeah. however i can't tell you whether ducks uh are important in uh in, in the world of rune quest there this is a very, there are ducks yeah there are, you will meet you will meet the ducks and you have to decide what you want no to no, do no, no. i'm saying whether oh. in in the, in the oh, oh in the yeah i know oh, okay. i know i've met oh. i'm talking about in the in the pen and paper right. game if that's yeah. what you're asking me yeah. i don't i yes. don't recall any ducks but i didn't play a lot of rune there quest are then. there are ducks there are ducks in RuneQuest? There are ducks. In RuneQuest, really? There are ducks. Oh, awesome. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I don't know if that's the word I would use. <laughs> I can't believe I'm the old fogey on this podcast. That's yeah. just, I, yeah. I'm not sure how to feel about that. Yeah. Uh, but this is a very, I mean, it, it's a very, I mean, it's just a modern society, it's a progressive society. There's, you know, balanced male-female cultures. And, it, but there are just, I don't know. It's for some reason that one quest kind of sticks, stands out for me because by the first time I played, I thought, well, you know, clearly this is an insult to honor um, because we have this conception of what ancient and pre-modern honor is, and it that but that's not the game that they're playing and the religion, the religious aspect. It's not the way strategy games generally treat religion. Oh, it's there clearly are the bonuses and the bonuses will happen, but no, there's this all the this other stuff you have to consider. Like, do you have anybody? On your council even believes in this god or follows this god and the the deities the, the, the religious is the religion is so central i think to the strategic side that you don't we don't see that enough even in games like our games like crusader kings where there's piety and that's a resource that you spend that you accumulate and you spend it so clearly you know it's, it's important but it's a counter it's not necessarily something you engage you can accumulate piety and still be an unbeliever because of the way the math works out. Um, that's a harder thing to do, I think. In um, It's harder to ignore the gods in uh, King of Dragon Pass. <laughs> Although, to be fair, uh, 
one of your uses for magic is uh, a a slider in combat to spend magic to give you mm-hmm. bonuses. Yep. So mm-hmm. <laughs> no that's, game is that's perfect. That's how it was. <laughs> no, yeah, well, look, that, but that's but you got to you got to sacrifice a bunch of cows to get that. Yeah, I mean that's just how many people are doing magic. I mean that's that's, that's I think that's how it was. Slider, yeah. a slider. Yeah. There's nothing less magical than a slider. I'm sorry. A magic slider. Oh my goodness. I don't know. So there, there, there's some burger places here that's some really good sliders. I hate sliders. Little tiny hamburgers. Come on. Oh, I want a well, big so hamburger. I, so I take it. So we're gonna say right here that there there will be no sliders in at the gates. Oh yes. You have that right. <laughs> oh, okay, you heard it here first. That's an exclusive. Except on the uh, on the volume part of the setting okay. screen. No, I think you need to have a uh, dial. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not letting you trick me. That's that's not right. <laughs> Sliders are fine for volume. That's mm. that's about it. Boxes, just all be to- toggle boxes. I like no sliders. Just yes on. <laughs> it doesn't sound right, but you know, I don't know what else to call it. Game so, design you is, said there were... is weird. So, Bruce, as you said before, so there are multiple versions of this game out there, and there are. There's the original box version, which I've got, and there's an iPad version, which I don't have, and there's a Steam version, which I do have. Um, are you aware of how they differ from each other? Do they differ in significant ways? Uh, well, I'm not the expert on this, but I did do some uh, looking at I, – I read through some things in David Dunham's uh, blog, and it looks like they significantly increased the uh, number of uh, – the, the sort of the story, uh, there, there are, I think, twice as many words or something like that. Um, and they did some additional uh, events, uh, interactive events. Um, they, they significantly increased the number of, of, uh, the, of the text in the game. Now, how that actually breaks down, I didn't, I didn't get a, um, uh, I didn't get a, uh, an exact uh, breakdown, but I do believe that the game that was released on the iOS and is now on Steam is um, expanded from the original uh, game that I played so many years ago uh, on the PC and that I have the CD of somewhere in, in kicking around in a box. Yeah, I went to try to dig up my manual to do some research, but I uh, put it in a box when I cleaned my apartment four months ago, and I can't find that box. So <laughs> never clean your apartment, people. You yeah, lose things. There's a lesson. Good rule. That's a good rule. <laughs> the game I would I would definitely recommend though would you would recommend it to pretty much anybody who um, has any interest in strategy and and good storytelling would would that's what I would say. Yeah, this I think is a one of the essential games. I think if we don't have this, we we're really yeah, are we on, is this on our Steam curation? It should be on our Steam. I think it is. We're really bad at the Steam curation curation thing. But I should probably check and make sure if this is on our. Uh, curating list uh because it is i think one of the essential uh strategy games well there, there, um, there's still time before the uh, episode goes up to make sure it's on there before anybody finds out that's right that's nobody right. would yeah. know edit, edit, they, edit, oh edit. yes of yeah. course yeah michael take this out quick yes can out. This. nope so um so yeah you'll see that it's uh, on our curated list of essential strategy games of yes, course uh, of course why wouldn't it Yes, there's no. a three moves of head curation thing that we never talk about because we are terrible at updating things. Though I did <laughs> relatively recently, as in Good. like within the last month. <laughs> Perfect. That's recent. That's recent enough. Any any final thoughts from uh, you gentlemen about this uh, this gem of a game? I'm pretty much on the same page as you. Where I mean, it's it's an essential game to play. I mean, I you know I've kind of been the uh, 
the devil's advocate a little bit here on on the episode, but I only do that because I'm a game designer and I'm not allowed to have fun. But mm-hmm. that's sure. <laughs> but the, the game just does so many different things and it meshes so many concepts and mechanics and like it pulls in theme and it pulls in art and it pulls in mechanics and it does just a great job at all of them. And and you could say, all right, well, you know, it's random. There's events. There's no map. There's no units that are moving around. It's not like other strategy games, whatever. But what it does, it does amazingly well. And it there, there's, I can't think of another game that does it anywhere near the way it does. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. a completely unique game and absolutely uh, something that every strategy fan should play at least once. Um, you know, even if you don't enjoy it, you'll be like, oh, wow. You know, I didn't know there were strategy games like this out there <laughs> because the first time I played it, I felt the same way. And I I can't imagine anybody not feeling that because there's just not games like this out there. Um, so it's it's got a lot to offer. I think everybody should check it out. Yeah, it's a very well-priced twelve ninety nine Canadian, which is probably ten ninety nine or nine ninety or nine ninety nine US. Uh, it's twelve cents. Twelve cents US. Yeah, Fifty cents. It's the cheapest game you'll find. Uh, so it's twelve ninety nine Canadian on Steam, and it is a game I highly, highly recommend. Um, and I am kind of sorry Bruce never got to review that for Games Domain. I remember reading a lot of Bruce's stuff back on Games Domain, including his Jeeps versus a tank thing. Mm. Or uh, Operational Art of War. I've been reading Bruce's stuff for long before we became colleagues. Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you the um, the uh, uh, review, the lack of a review on the games domain for King of Dragon Pass is solely my fault. There's no there's no outside influence that uh, that prevented it. There was no, no mean PR, uh, you know, PR person who called my editor and had him take it down. It's just all me. I was too. I was too locked up in trying to do things uh, like make out what it was a wiki before I knew what a wiki was. But now apparently there's a wiki. I just found it on uh, there's kingofdragonpass.wikia.com. But uh, it's not very comprehensive, which maybe is good for people who are learning the game. You get to learn it the way the, the old timers did it. <laughs> you you need to relax one of these days, Bruce. My goodness. <laughs> from wikis to brain surgery. I mean, there you go. Well, you know, it's got a hard life. He's been playing you know. all this SPI. War game stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll have a, we'll have a show about that in Winter War Gaming. But that's, that's that we digress. So, that sounds really yes. relaxing. So uh, thank you, John and Bruce, for joining me in this uh, tour of a 15 year old game that everyone should play. Hopefully after our podcast. I know we've been getting a lot of requests for it, and please discuss it in our forum because there's been a lot of um, people have a lot of thoughts on this game because it is so big. Uh, as usual, this show was produced by Michael Hermes, our amazing sound editor. And it is hosted by the Idle Thumbs Network. You can find us at 3movesahead.net. Thank you, Bruce and John. And everyone, have a good night. Good night. Good night, guys. Thanks for staying tuned to the very end of the show, as I asked you to do at the very beginning of the show, for the special announcement from 3 Moves Ahead. I'm throwing it over to my partner, Rob Zachney. Yeah, and uh, it's exciting to announce finally that we are launching a 3 Moves Ahead Patreon. Uh, to 
uh, hopefully sort of launch a new era of Three Moves Ahead and expand our offerings a little bit. Uh, but most importantly, uh, it will allow us to do some exciting things that we've been sort of kicking around for ages and compensate the people uh, who've been putting in a, a fair amount of <laughs> unpaid effort uh, for, for years uh, making making the show every week. Wait, 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 wait. That This sounds like a new tax. It's not a tax, Bruce. Uh, let, let's let's say it's a uh, it's a way to prevent the tragedy of the commons. Wouldn't you agree, Troy? Yeah, think of this as not a tax, but you know, it's about charity, and everyone's about charity. Well, actually, it's no, not about charity. It's about giving donations. Uh, for a very long time, people have been asking us how they can support Three Moves Ahead, and generally, it hasn't been a problem. We can support ourselves quite well. Um, I support myself quite well. And many of us have jobs, but the show takes a lot of time to do. The show is uh, very time-intensive, especially since strategy games are time-intensive. And the more strategy games that come out, the harder it is to winnow through the ones you want to play. Rob takes quite a bit of time in planning the show. Um, He's a freelancer, and of course, that causes financial issues. And Michael has been doing largely unpaid labor uh, for the last four or five years. Outstanding work. And it's, I think it's time for us to see uh, what the level of support is from our audience. And so those who want to support us have an avenue to do so, as well as, we hope, take the podcast in some bold new directions, since we'll be freeing up time for Rob to think about the direction the show could be going in. Yeah, and uh, one of those ideas is to have a monthly special episode. So if, if we if we manage to raise fifteen hundred a month, uh, which is uh, just sort of my back of the envelope break even calculation for for what the show uh, costs, like me and Michael to say the least uh, every week. Um, if if we manage to bring in like fifteen hundred a month, one thing that I've been wanting to do a little bit is uh, sort of cover paradox games a little differently than we do now. Uh, right now, they tend to come up a lot, and they tend to come up in bursts. So there will be phases where suddenly three moves ahead becomes very very paradox intensive, uh, and that also has led to situations where um, I have felt, and occasionally listeners have brought it up as well that we're doing so much paradox coverage, it sort of chokes out some some other coverage opportunities and prevents us from spending time on uh, some of the smaller games or, or other games that are out there uh, that would also be in the Three Moves Ahead wheelhouse. And so one thing I would love to do if we can sort of bring in 1500 a month is do a monthly special episode about uh, the Paradox lineup, which at this point is pretty extensive. And uh, a lot of us and a lot of the regulars are actually pretty heavily involved at any given time in one or two different Paradox franchises. So this would be a chance for us to discuss how these games are changing, because they always are, uh, or perhaps book guests from Paradox and talk a little bit about the direction of the studio and uh, the the various franchises. And certainly with the upcoming launch of the new Hearts of Iron game, uh, I suspect there's going to be, and to say nothing of Stellaris, I suspect there's going to be a lot of interest about uh, on this. And, uh, you know, honestly, I suspect this is something our community wants as well, because uh, as you and I both know, Troy, uh, our Paradox uh, download stats are always surprisingly inflated compared to our normal topics. Uh, So the Three Moves Ahead audience definitely loves Paradox, uh, sometimes perhaps more than us. Uh, But uh, sadly, you won't be able to take part uh, because we, we do have the... The uh, separation of church and state, as it were, uh, the the wall Chinese yeah, wall, the 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 wall built between Troy and Paradox topics, uh, but we do have some some other ideas as well. 
Yeah. The other thing that we thought we would do, because we have so much uh, historical commentary on the show, and we're always throwing out book recommendations and things like that, we thought that if we were able to get to the elevated level of $2,500 a month, that we would run a monthly Three Moves Ahead History Book Club. And what this would consist of would be us choosing a book or two on a given topic, and then we would all read it and discuss it. We would, of course, encourage the listeners to do so as well. And then the listeners could um, not only – they could submit questions to us, and we could uh, discuss that uh, on the show, and as well as uh, just kind of giving our insights into what we thought about the books and how that fits into the general history of gaming and the games that might have addressed that topic. Yeah, and this is uh, an idea that – well, this is an idea I largely blame on you, Bruce, because uh, in some ways you're already running the, <laughs> through, the, the Three Moves Ahead History Book Club uh, since for, I would say, the last couple of years. Uh, every, every so often a, a book will just appear on my doorstep, uh, and then I'll get an mm. email uh, that's basically like, you need to read this. And I do, and it's uh-huh. usually great. And then more, you know, sometimes we manage to get a show in about that. And uh, some of our more book-driven shows have been some of my absolute favorites to prepare and record. And I have always sort of cherished the idea of being able to expand on that work a little bit and you know, really just kind of discuss, the, discuss some of these books, which can be uh, both stylistically beautiful and, and hugely eye-opening uh, with some of the most interesting strategy and uh, history uh, writers and readers I know. Uh, the the thing we have to clarify, though, is that uh, listeners will not be receiving the books in the mail prior to each podcast. So sorry about that, but uh, we will definitely invite you to uh, read along. And if the books are available on Kindle or e-readers, we will certainly uh, point you to where you can find them. Uh, these are the two, these are two goals we've set up. Um, any other funds uh, that come in, if we have other goals, other plans, I know that Rob and I have discussed many things we would like to do uh, for the show. Rob has expanded the audience for the show, expanded our panels in very interesting ways, and he's full of very interesting plans for the direction he would like the show to go in because we are growing. We're growing an audience. Uh, we're growing in experience. We're growing in the breadth of the panelists uh, we can draw from from week to week. So there are many things we would like to do. These are two goals we've set that would be rewards uh, for the listeners. And we have, um, if you contribute a certain level, we have subscriber rewards, which are listed on the Patreon page, which you'll find linked in on our forum, which you can find through threemovesahead.net on the Idle Forums, Idle Thumbs Network. Yeah, and uh, to get a little more brass tacks, I would say before we go, like I, I do think it is it is fair to say that one of the ways this podcast has changed over the years is it has become uh, obviously a, a, just a little more polished, a little more produced, a little more professional uh, than it was when it started. It's become uh, a much more planned show, and uh, that's that's part of the reason that it, it takes a little more time uh, than it used to. And then also there is the very real fact that. Um, you know, let's face it, like, you know, we might as well address the elephant in the room. Uh, the, the game's media landscape has changed so drastically from when we started doing this. Because, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that when we started doing Three Moves Ahead, uh, you know, there were, there were a number of us who this was kind of a weird, this was a little side trip 
on the uh, on the way to the store basically right we were already doing all the work we needed to do to record a, a, a strategy podcast uh and we had a lot of clients paying for that work and and now it's a little more of a uh, this has become a little more of a specialist project and a a labor of love a labor of love and sometimes you, you can pay for the love and that is kind of what we're doing love uh won't pay the bills won't pay rob's bills and won't pay michael's bills the show is one of my favorite things in the world, and I know it means a great deal to Rob, and I know it means a great deal to a lot of you in the audience. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep getting people asking where they can subscribe or donate or what have you. And I do get a few emails like that uh, every season. So please take a look at the Patreon page and look what's available. And if you have any questions, um, we'll try to answer them as best we can. Yeah, so uh, obviously, thank you for listening to uh, our sort of pseudo-Patreon pitch. You can find the full pitch on, on Patreon, uh, which, as Troy said, you'll find on the Idle Thumbs forums or uh, f- or by following our Three Moves Ahead Twitter, uh, which is simply at 3MA. Uh, so thanks for, thanks for hearing us out, and uh, if you choose to, thanks for supporting us. And we look forward to many more years of recording the show together.